The Gospel tonight is from the book of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light, so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. The word of the Lord. We have entered the season of the ridiculous and the beautiful. This Christian celebration of the coming of God into the world as a helpless infant, ridiculous, beautiful. We have moved through this ludicrous and tremendous incarnation at Christmas, and now we'll follow the growth, the filling out, the getting to know who this vulnerable infant God becomes. But first, we visit this birth, this incarnation, once more through the poetic imaginings of the author of the Gospel of John. These words that John writes to describe this event, the nativity of Jesus, are simply preposterous. Preposterous to use these words in relation to an infant. They're so grand, beyond grand, they're cosmic and foundational. They are all things. They are not just the meaning of life. They are life itself. The figure of a baby, bald, pink, naked baby, as the incarnation of the creator of all things, is preposterous. Preposterous, but not unbelievable. John's birth narrative does not start with the birth of the baby born in a barn to two peasants in Bethlehem some 2,000 years ago, but it includes it. John's birth narrative starts at the beginning, the beginning, or whenever the beginning is or was. It's just a word to talk about a wordless time. The beginning of time, before the beginning of time, the time before creation, 
because all things that were created came into being through this word of God, who entered the world on a night sometime 2,000 years ago. John's narrative, this poetic imagining that opens this book, does not end with the death and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, but it includes it. It includes it in the first five verses of this book. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. We know from our faith and the tradition of our faith that this bald pink baby grows to be a man and is killed and is raised from the dead. He continues to be the light of the world, the life in the world, the truth in the world, the light which overcomes the darkness, the life which overcomes death, the truth which overcomes the lie. Now, no one knows with any certainty when this baby called Jesus was born, the time of day or year. Some even say it was most likely June. But our tradition places it at a night in the shortest day of the year, the coldest months, the longest night of the year. Now, historically, this may or may not be accurate, but theologically, it could not be better. We remember that night, that night so dark, the darkness so long, and a shining star like no star ever shone. The light in the darkness, the life, fullness of life, birthed in that night. We celebrate on that long night of long darkness and bitter cold with warmth and light. We light fires and light candles. We burn bright. These rituals point us to the light that is the light of the world and is the hope of all people. Not just that night 2,000 years ago, not just on a cold January night like tonight, but we light candles in the darkness. We tell stories of the light shining in the darkness to remind us for the rest of the year, for tomorrow, and for a hundred years from now, and a hundred years ago, that this light has come into the world, and the darkness did not overcome it, could not overcome it, will not overcome it. All that light gives us permission to love life, and to live life with hope, and to be assured always of the hope that our hope will not be frustrated, defeated, or in vain. Our hope will be realized that life will overcome death and that love will overcome hate. And when we believe this and we live our lives with this hope, we are not being foolish. We are aligning ourselves with the truth that has existed before us and will continue beyond us. I should stop there. I mean, I should probably just stop there. This coming of the light is what we're going to be ritualizing next Sunday at the Feast of Epiphany. So I could just stop right here, and then we could pick up the celebrating of this striking, shining incarnation next week. But the author of this book does not stop there. The writer does a curious thing at the beginning of this book. After he makes this glorious proclamation, he introduces another character. Just six verses in, 
he introduces another character that is not the light of the world, who spends a lot of time telling people that he is not the life, he is not the truth, he is not the light that is the light to all people. This man sent from God, whose name is John, and he comes as a witness to testify to the light so that all might believe. He himself is not the light, but he came to testify to the light, the true light, which enlightens everyone. And this character, John, continues to be a curious character. If you would permit me to do a little scriptural mashup and borrow from the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, we find this curious character, John, again baptizing at the Jordan River, out from the city, out in the wilderness, the desert, the desperate places. He's baptizing people for the forgiveness of sin, calling them to repent of the darkness. Jesus, the light, comes to him and asks John to baptize him. Jesus, the light, comes to him and asks John to baptize him. The light seeks a baptism, a cleansing of the darkness. This is always problematic, this scene. I mean, it's well known. It's an iconic image, but it's always problematic. What does it mean when John says to Jesus on the occasion of our Lord submitting himself to his forerunner? He says, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? John tried to prevent him, tried to pull him up off his knees to kind of scooch him back onto dry land. But Jesus replied, let it be so now, for it is proper for us in this way to fulfill all righteousness. Let it be so now. The first clause of Jesus' answer is like a prayer from some contemplative spiritual practice. Jesus says, let it be so now. Let it be so now. John's sense of propriety, of the way things should be, or he, he would have them be, has been turned upside down. He is perplexed and grasping for the order he'd hoped to impose. He is to point to the light, not to receive the confession of the light. But Jesus' response is, let it be so now. For it is proper for us in this way to fulfill all righteousness. Is Jesus saying righteousness is fulfilled when the order is turned upside down and one does not move to right it? to reach out, to put it back the way one understands it to be, but instead just breathes in and breathes out and prays, let it be so now. The light shines in the darkness. Maybe Jesus comes to find the darkness. Comes to John in the desert to be with the darkness, to be in the darkness. For that's where he's called, right? To penetrate the darkness. Maybe he penetrates it from the inside. Maybe he comes to us to bring life and light in a way that it is not for us at first even recognizable. 
It's not a blinding, glaring light that causes us to turn away, but instead moves us to take Jesus into our arms and to bring him down into the water and lower him under the water with us. My people come from Missouri, north and east of Kansas City. It's a middling place, a split or kind of in-between place. Missouri was a divided state in the Civil War. And over in St. Louis, they chose to put the headquarters of the Lutheran Church of Missouri Synod, which looks like a mainline Protestant denomination on paper and lives its life out loud like American evangelicals. It's a place where Pentecostals rub up against Methodists and trade unions hold Bible studies. And my Grandpa Webb from there, he told me of a night when he was at a meeting. No more explanation than that. I just assumed it was a church service. He said meeting. He was Baptist, but who knows, it could have been one of those tent kind of things. The way I always thought of it, though, in my mind when he told me it was a Sunday night service, the Sunday night service being a bit more casual and having a little bit more leeway for songs not in the hymnal and the arrival of the Holy Spirit. My Grandpa Webb used to tell me this story one Sunday night when the text of the baptism of Jesus was being read from the gospel. He said Pastor Cecil got up and he preached what he usually preached. Then he finally brought it around to the altar call, which among these sorts of free church traditions is how every service always ends. And my grandpa told me, he said, he, uh, Pastor Cecil, he pointed his fat, shaking, sweaty finger out at those gathered and cried out, you must submit yourself to the Savior. I beg of you for the salvation of your own souls. Come forward. Come forward and kneel before the Savior and beg his forgiveness. Well, my grandpa Webb, he said he was sitting next to Rory, which he said he did from time to time, even though Rory was known to be a bad man and a drunk and a listener of roadhouse music. And like most Sunday nights, Pastor Cecil was pointing that sausage finger right at Rory. Well, Rory didn't do much at first, but then he just kind of sort of stood up in his pew and then fell back down. And Rory, he was looking up past Pastor Cecil up at the communion table, and everybody followed his eyes. And my grandpa said, we all saw it. It was Jesus frickin' Christ standing behind the communion table. Now Jesus, he comes down from behind the communion table and he makes his way down the aisle to the pew where Rory and my grandpa Webb were sitting. Now, he kind of squishes past everybody and past my grandpa until he gets to Rory. And then he kneels down on the creaking hardwood floor before Rory and he bows his head and he says, Rory, forgive me. Forgive you, Rory says. Haven't you been paying attention? 
And Grandpa Webb tells me next, Jesus looked up into Rory's face and said, let it be so now. For it's proper for us in this way to fulfill all righteousness. Come now and receive the light and the life which is offered to you. Let it be so now.